My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. You can ask Canadians about wrongful convictions in this country. And you'll probably get a couple of high-profile answers from decades ago, before forensic science was so advanced, before new technologies allowed us to solve cold cases across generations. In fact, one of the most famous songs in Canadian history is about one of those high-profile examples. interested in something you didn't do Today, more than 30 years after David Milgard's conviction was overturned, it can be really tempting to think that as our technology has improved, we've gotten better at this, better at making sure the wrong person doesn't end up in prison. But the truth is, we still get it wrong, and we genuinely don't know how often that happens. Also, to be clear, unless the case we're talking about is a murder, the system doesn't often care if the wrong person ends up with the record. And we really don't have a plan to fix that. So why does this happen? Well, it happens because at the root of this system are humans. Humans get it wrong for all sorts of reasons. So how hard is it? Right now, today, to write a wrongful conviction in this country. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Kelly Lozon is a PhD student in the Department of Law and Legal Studies at Carleton University. Also, the host of the podcast, Real Life Wrongs. Hey, Kelly. Hello. Thanks for finding a little time for us. Thank you for making time for me. Can you tell me how many people in jail or in prison in Canada are wrongfully convicted? Can we, like, look at the cases we do know about and extrapolate and do some math here? Is that even possible? So when I'm teaching my wrongful conviction class, I always preface it with everything I say makes it sound like I'm finding the easy road on this. And it's because the answer is, no. The the quick and easy answer is no. Because the problem with wrongful convictions is that as far as the justice system is concerned, everyone who is currently in prison now, that's a rightful conviction. They've gone through the legal process. They've, you know, exercised all their legal rights and they were convicted. So as far as the system's concerned, it's done what it's supposed to do right? We can't say that a conviction is wrongful until it's been overturned on appeal. So to say how many wrongfully convicted people are in prison, we don't know, right? 
there's no doubt that there are wrongfully convicted individuals in prison right now currently serving sentences and wrongfully convicted people who are not in prison who are serving various sentences. But until it's been overturned, we can't say definitively that it's a wrongful conviction because it hasn't been overturned. There's no way for us to know that. Can't we just look at all the convictions that have been made and then the ones that do turn out to be wrongful and then like extrapolate a percentage like 0.015% of convictions are eventually overturned? Sure. So in Canada, we just recently, I think it's in the last year, we've just recently created and made public the uh, Registry of Wrongful Convictions in Canada. So it lists all of the known wrongful conviction cases in Canada. And in the registry, there are currently 89. Well, that's a small number. Sure. The registry is based on the American National Registry of Exonerations, which has 3,400 and change, which is significantly higher. So, sure, like you say, 89 doesn't sound like a huge amount. But as I said, these are only the ones that we know about. Who knows how many more are currently in prison? There have been studies in the U.S. that have been conducted to, you know, estimate the prevalence of wrongful conviction. And because of different data inclusion criteria, the numbers range from 0.5% to 20%, right? So it's really tough because a lot of the wrongful convictions, and again, when you say 89 is a low number, These are high-stakes cases. These are generally murder cases, sexual assault cases, infanticide cases, things of this nature, right? Because these are the ones that people are going to fight to have their name cleared over. The people who are, you know, convicted of summary offenses are not likely going to invest the time, the money, the effort to have things overturned because it was a summary conviction. But those are wrongful convictions. And, you know, they should be considered as such. But, you know, we don't often consider those. So when you include that into how many there possibly are, the number undoubtedly grows exponentially. As you do, I guess, in your class, but also on your podcast, uh, as you look at wrongful convictions in and of themselves on a case-by-case basis, What kind of patterns do you end up seeing in them? There's a few different ways that I can answer this. So first off, the pattern is wrongful convictions are not unique to any particular jurisdiction, right? They're a human problem. They're not a Canadian problem, an American problem, a European problem. They're a human problem. So they essentially are present in every justice system. And then when you look further into it, it's generally all of the same factors that are present and more or less with the same kind of representativeness. So, you know, eyewitness identification or faulty eyewitness identification is usually at the top of the list for contributing factors. But again, tied to the human side, there's also tunnel vision on the part of criminal justice actors. There's uh, shoddy forensic work. There's, you know, unreliability with various witnesses. And again, this all comes down to the frailty of the human memory. So wrongful convictions aren't necessarily the result of malicious action on anybody. Don't get me wrong. 
there are some bad apples and there have been clusters of uh, wrongful convictions in Canada. So in Ontario, we had, I think we're up to 14 tied to a now disgraced forensic pathologist. In Manitoba, there was an overzealous crown prosecutor who was responsible, I think we're at five or six now. So, you know, again, these are more intentional wrongdoings, but a lot of the times it's just because it's a human system. Another trend or pattern, if you want to call it, in wrongful convictions is that the wrongfully convicted are generally marginalized individuals. And this is not only because of race, but they can be marginalized because of their social capital, their mental capacity, their socioeconomic status, you know, really marginalized for any reason that makes them different from the moral majority, essentially, right? And what this highlights is that wrongful convictions can happen to anyone, you know, and and I think we as people have a tendency to just think, oh, this doesn't happen to me. This happens to everybody else, right? Like it, it happens in the headlines, it happens out there. Problem is, to everybody else, you are part of everybody else, right? And so there's just a tendency to be somewhat blissfully ignorant that these even happen. I want to unpack a couple of things that you just mentioned there, because I'm I'm curious. You mentioned um, people in the justice system having tunnel vision. What do you mean by that, and how does it impact a case that ends uh, with a wrongful conviction? Right. So tunnel vision, there's no precise definition for it, but it was first mentioned in the Canadian legal context in the Guy Palmeret inquiry, where Justice Kaufman basically said it's the result of an overly narrow view of a case where investigators, prosecutors, you know, just justice actors are zeroing in on one theory, on one suspect. And in doing so, they are discounting any information that could contradict their theory, and they're only looking for stuff that supports their theory, right? So, you know, there are things that in the Guy Palmeray case where there were strong indicators that he had no part in this offense, and yet prosecutors and police were like, no, 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 no. But look at this one little piece of evidence, and we're going to make this fit our narrative. So I think it's obvious that a wrongful conviction happens because of exactly this, where you're creating a very one-sided story where the justice actors all feed into. And the problem is, if the police officers are collecting evidence that only lead to this conclusion— that's what they're going to turn over to the Crown Council, who is then going to present that story to the jury. So everybody's getting this unidimensional version of what happened. When somebody is involved, as a couple of people you just mentioned are, in more than one of these and it becomes a pattern, what happens to them? I, I assume there's discipline taken in the workplace. What happens to all? all of the cases that they've worked on? Does every case they've touched get thrown out? Do they have to go through them one by one? What's the actual practice there? So you would like to think that there would be some punitive action 
I think we all would like to assume that because it would make us think that things are, you know, being held to account. The problem is a lot of these individuals are not held accountable. A lot of them are promoted. A lot of them are patted on the back for a job well done. And it's because it takes so long for cases to be uncovered as being a wrongful conviction, right? So all we see for years is good job closing this case and pat on the back, move on, here's your promotion. It took 20 years for the pathologist. Things started to kind of fall apart at the seams. And there was an, well, it was a review called of a particular sample of the cases he had worked on. From that sample, it was determined that there are a lot of questionable findings here. Now we need to open it up and look at a much larger sample. And from there, there was a national commission of inquiry called to investigate what happened with these cases. So eventually, like 30 years after the first kind of questions may have been raised with regards to their work, they were finally stripped of their medical license. But that was more or less the end of the punitive action taken. 14 people had been wrongfully convicted and served a variety of sentences. Several people had pled guilty to avoid the trauma and the difficulties of going to trial. And, you know, so there were so many lives ruined. And, you know, okay, they can't practice medicine anymore, but they pretty much had had a complete career at that point. I'm Laura Palmer, host of Island Crime. Season six, Sweethearts, is the story of three teenage girls who were all murdered in Victoria, Canada within about 12 months. So she was scared. Something out there scared her. You've just created the playground where predators can really thrive. She was a 16-year-old girl. She was a sweetheart. Listen to Sweethearts at FrequencyPodcastNetwork.com or wherever you get podcasts. Find your frequency. What options do people have once they've been convicted? How difficult is the process to get a conviction overturned? I think the basic understanding I have and probably most people listening have is you have to appeal it and then win an appeal. Explain the complexity of that. You're not wrong. I mean, so you are convicted and you are proclaiming innocence. You would have to file an appeal. The problem is, it's not like on TV where you just say, oh, you convicted me, I'm going to appeal, right? You have to have a legal reason to appeal. You know, so it's not like, oh, you don't like the verdict? Great, we'll, you know, give you a second chance at this. You have to have grounds for an appeal. And a lot of appeals are dismissed because they're like, no, everybody did what they were supposed to do. And so we're upholding this conviction. So you have to um, go through all of your avenues of appeal. So you would appeal to the Provincial Court of Appeal, and then you would appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. And in each of these instances, either the appeal is going to be allowed, and so then you would present your case again, or it's dismissed. Once you have exhausted all of your avenues, then you can apply to the Minister of Justice for a ministerial review where then the Minister of Justice looks through everything to see if 
a miscarriage of justice had taken place. This is not an easy process to go through. Just to clarify, so between March of 2010 and April of 2023, the minister had received 286 applications, right? So 286 applications to review cases, 11 of them were granted remedy. The Minister of Justice cannot uh, say, the courts were wrong, you're acquitted, right? Like, it has to go back to the courts for their decision. So it's a long, long process. You've spoken to people who have been through it. I know you can't put me directly inside their heads, but I would love to know what it feels like, first of all, to be wrongfully convicted, and second of all, to have to go through that process, which I imagine can just be frustrating. In the course of my work over the last 20, give or take, years in the field of wrongful convictions, I have had the opportunity to uh, meet and speak with a number of wrongfully convicted individuals, and I've had the fortune of being able to call many of them really close friends of mine now. So we've had lots of conversations of, you know, what was it like and where are you now and what's your outlook like now? And for the most part, it's overwhelming for them to go through. And there's just an overwhelming sense of disbelief that this could be happening because, you know, I didn't do this. How can you possibly have evidence that says that I did do it? I wasn't even in the city. I wasn't even, I didn't even know this person or where they lived or whatever. And you're saying I was at their, you know, place of residence committing this crime. And then going through the appeal process, it's very demoralizing because basically now the individual has to prove a negative. And, you know, I always do this kind of thought exercise with my students where I say, prove to me that you were not at the library last night, right? So, of course, students will say, well, the security cameras. Nope, library doesn't have any security cameras. Well, I was home with my roommate or my family. I'm like, great, they're going to lie for you because they're so close to you. Right. Like, and, I'm, and I always just try to counter all of the potential things that they offer as evidence for, well, this is how I prove that I wasn't at the library. And they get so frustrated because I keep discounting everything. And they're like, well, that's not possible. That's not possible. But this is what it's like. I mean, obviously, a very low stakes version, but this is what it's like for a wrongfully convicted individual to try to prove a negative, to prove that they did not do something, that they were not somewhere. I was going to ask because I tried to put myself in that position, and I can't imagine not being just angry and bitter at life, at the system, at all the time we've lost. What is it like for them? So on the one hand, there's a lot of trauma that they have to work through because prison is undoubtedly one of the worst things that you can live through. And, you know, we see blood and guts and gore on TV all the time, but we know it's fake, right? They're in prison and they're seeing things that no human should have to see. And that lives with you. And a lot of times people are put into prison branded as particularly heinous individuals when in fact they're not. So you can imagine the repercussions that come with that. In the end, the overwhelming 
sense from these people is love and gratitude and empathy and understanding. And I tell them all that they're far better people than I am. Because like you, I imagine that I would come out and just absolutely hate the world. And it's far from it with these guys. If we're getting better, and by that I mean getting better at A, fixing wrongful convictions and exonerating innocent people, and B, I guess not wrongfully convicting in the first place. And I ask this because, you know, when you were just uh, giving that library example and you mentioned surveillance cameras, um, there are exponentially more surveillance cameras than there ever were before. Our, Our technology around DNA and stuff like that, I assume, continues to improve. Those things you would think would lead to a decrease uh, both in the number of wrongful convictions and an increase in how we're able to fix them when we get them wrong. So a few things. First, DNA is generally not available at every crime scene, right? In your high stakes cases, absolutely. But if you're wrongfully convicted for shoplifting or a break and enter, there's likely not going to be DNA evidence to conclusively include or exclude you. With technology and video surveillance, it is everywhere. I mean, we and we all carry a video camera in our pockets with our phones, right? Problem is, it does not capture the whole picture. You're not getting all the angles. You're not necessarily getting all the lead up and aftermath, right? You may or you may not have audio, and it may or may not be a clear picture. So we like to think that that will solve the problem, but it's not the cure-all that we hope it is, right? And it's not available everywhere. I mean, it, it is pretty ubiquitous, but it's not in every spot. And it also depends on, is the footage going to be available to law enforcement by the time they decide that they want to review it because a lot of stuff is only kept for finite periods of time because they record over and and whatnot. So are we getting better? I would like to think so because we have had exposure to the occurrence of wrongful conviction. And, you know, we know they happen. There's not this blissful ignorance that the system does exactly what it's supposed to be doing. But I can't say conclusively because the wheels of justice turn so slowly. And, you know, today we're uncovering wrongful convictions from 10, 20 years ago because of how long it takes to work through the appeals process. So really, I feel like we're going to have to wait another 20 years to be able to look back and see how well we were doing in 2023. Kelly, thank you so much for this. It's a fascinating uh, look into a world I don't think uh, most of us really understand outside of television. True. And and that is one of the reasons why I teach my course on wrongful convictions, because it's something that is largely glossed over. And I believe the best prevention is education. If we can educate our future criminal justice workers and just be aware that these things happen they can make changes from the inside as they move forward in their careers. Thanks again for uh, walking us through it. Thank you so much. Kelly Lozon, PhD student and the host of Real Life Wrongs. If you ever believe these things can't happen today, listen to her show. That was the big story. For more of our show, 
head to thebigstorypodcast.ca to talk to us about what you'd like to hear more of. Hit us up via email, hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca, or call us. Leave a voicemail, 416-935-5935. As always, if you like this podcast, we encourage you to share it with other people who could also use a daily dose of Canadian news. Sometimes we even rhyme things. Unintentionally, I swear. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.